0: Okay. Good afternoon, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Um, we've already met, actually, only about five minutes ago. Um, but I'm super grateful that you guys gave us your time um, as part of this show to share the information that you have, the experience, and the insight into what I think is a really important um, subject and concern, and and very prevalent part of of the world today. Um, I'll do a quick intro. Um, we have Suzette Southfox here, who's a part of NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I know you're the uh, Head of Outreach, the Outreach Program Manager, okay. so you, you Director head that department. of Education. There you go. Okay. Um, and one of the things that I think is really unique about NAMI in my reading on it is that most people involved have a personal connection to mental health, mental illness, suicide, those types of matters, sure. um, which um, I think is is great. You know, I think there's a real intrinsic motivation for people that are involved and they're that much more connected to making a difference. And I, I thought that was really neat. Um, and I, I look forward to hearing a lot about that and what you have to share. Sure. Um, we also have uh, Dr. Glenn Lipson here with us, mm-hmm. who is a forensic psychologist. Uh, one of the things that, um, I found fascinating about you and and doing a little reading on you and your background is uh, not just the depth of your knowledge, but also the breadth of the different types of ways that mental illness and mental health and suicide kind of, uh, you know, raise their head in in society, whether it's with uh, PTSD in the military or in the workplace, um, you know, whether it's sexual harassment or... Just a number of different ways that we see it manifest um, and I know you have a ton of stories to tell and I look forward to hearing those. Uh, real quick, I just want to share our personal story here. Um, you know, I run a company here in San Diego, Lawyer's Title and Escrow and the genesis of us being here today, which I shared earlier, this is our first show, so that's kind of exciting, is uh, we had someone here at our company, a great guy, Joe Nunez, who was with us and a couple years ago, he took his own life. And um, that hit us really, really hard. Um, it was tough to understand, because he was one of those guys that was probably, if you pick someone in the room, that was the most gregarious, funny, outgoing, just, he used to have these sayings. You know, he's, he was a surfer guy from Oceanside. And he'd always say, it's all about the love, brother. Um, and he was just always seemed so upbeat and happy and the life of the room. And uh, so when that happened, it was a shock to all of us and at that time I wasn't running the company but my partner at the time running the company Mm -hmm. we made this commitment as a company for this to kind of to champion this cause and and get information out and education and be a part of this conversation Um, and I think if I'm in self-reflection being honest about it I think over the last two years we did probably what a lot of big companies do which is show their support or their you know getting behind something by writing checks or being a part of walks and and those things are great right and Mm -hmm. golf tournaments and comedy nights and things like that and and i do believe we made a difference that way but i think if our hearts in it we got to do a little bit more and get the information out there so that's why we're here today um and so i look forward to the discussion and so maybe i'll give each of you a chance to kind of share a little bit about kind of what you do on a daily basis and your connection to the the topic of mental health, mental illness, and suicide prevention, and then uh, I'm sure that'll lead to some some interesting discussion. Sure. So I, is that, well, I is have that a question sure? for you. Sure.
1: Tell me a little bit about how you want this to be used, and, and if it does what you really want it to do, what is that?
0: That's that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So, in my mind, if this touches one person, then we've won, right? So. A lot of people that I've talked to in this industry, we are a for-profit company, right? we It's what we do every day, and we serve customers and provide the best service we can. But at the end of the day, we you know, are trying to make a profit, um, and we're probably not known as the most community-involved and charitable type of organization. But um, to me, if the information from this discussion, um, whether it's someone that's battling with depression or some kind of mental illness or is contemplating suicide or maybe you know some of the things I want to talk about is you know I'm a parent of three kids Um, I'd love to learn what you guys know and what you can share about bullying and social media and those things that are just really changing the world we live in especially for the youth Um, if one person that's in a bad place gets this information and knows where they can turn to get help um, better understand maybe some of the things that they're feeling or thinking or maybe if a parent or a friend or a coworker, you know, learns some signs or symptoms or just a way to talk to somebody that maybe they feel like is battling these things, mm-hmm. um, if one, if that affects one person and we're able to, you know, save one life or kind of get them on the right path, I think we win. That's awesome. So that that's that's my vision of this. Um, I don't know how many people it'll reach, you know, but at the end of the day, it's it's. It's not about exposure or branding, or, and really there's, no, there's nothing in this to me that connects to like a business goal. Mm-hmm. This is truly making good on a commitment that we made um, to honor Joe and, and make a difference so that our work family never experiences something like this again or can possibly avoid it, and maybe other people out there um, can avoid that, that type of thing happening. So,
1: Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that. yeah. absolutely. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be a part of this. And I, I'm going to defer to you because I'm, I'm not a clinician. I'm, I'm not an expert sure. in, in a lot of things. I am a mom. I am a peer. Uh, and I do have some experience around that. But I would, I would love for you to start.
2: Usually what you do for my chair is you make the person who is struggling with something the expert because they're the expert on their own life. So a sign of a good expert is that they know how to listen, they know how to hear, and they know how to learn from you about your experience. And in that meeting and connecting, then there are different possibilities that become potentials that someone could decide to pursue. Suicide is Often born from the sense that there's nothing to do and this pain is never going to end, and right and central to it is a sense of hopelessness that nothing is going to change. In addition, it could be that everyone would be better off without this person, they feel like they're a burden. Now, when talking about Joe, you provided a sense of what an incredible impact he had on the life of those who knew him. Right. How energetic he was. This is someone you would look forward to seeing when you came to work. That he could lighten up a room, which then makes the absence of that light all the more difficult. And raising questions of, what should have I asked about? What could have I seen? How could I have understood something that... We, we never saw coming. And you're speaking to one aspect that we seldom talk about because sometimes we make the assumption that only people who appear depressed could be suicidal. Right. There are, one of the issues that occur with some people are suicidal is the amount of pressure they feel to be a certain way. And when they don't feel they could be that person anymore the life of the party, that ever-ready bunny with a battery going at full power and and behind everything, they have a sense that they've let everyone down and they don't know how to be anyone else. And when that gets lost to them, they don't want to be here anymore. I, I, I never met Robin Williams, but I had a sense of he didn't want to live with Louis body dementia and, and what he was struggling with and that sense of loss of self. That sense of loss of self sometimes propel people to try to make a decision of whether or not they wanna be here or not anymore. How do they want the world to see them? So during economic times when there's a collapse and someone has disappointed a lot of investors and a lot of other people, you end up with what happened during the onset of the Great Depression, people jumping out of the windows in Wall Street because they could no longer be that person uh, in, in terms of this, uh, this sense of competency, of, of connection, of value. So one of the constant issues that we have in terms of working with people who are struggling with all types of issues is to have people around them that communicate a sense of value, that it's important they're here. That's one of the things organizations like NAMI help to do. And I think that's something you could talk a little bit about.
1: Sure. Um, So NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, there's chapters all over. And San Diego is fortunate to have probably the largest one in the whole country. And we started in the late uh, 1970s. Many of the NAMIs started then. And we were founded by parents around a table like this, a kitchen table and the only thing that they could they had in common and the only thing that they could use the table to talk about was having an adult child who lived with schizophrenia and at that time certainly bad parenting was one of the reasons why people developed schizophrenia uh, which is not but it was a common thought at the time so being able to talk to peers about what was happening provided uh, amazing support, and NAMI is known for that as well. So we do a lot of signature programs, education programs, and there there are two communities, three basically, but. There's the family community, the loved ones, the people who are surrounding individuals who are living with a mental health challenge, condition, crisis, what have you. It's everybody around them. And then there's the individual themselves. So so we call people who live with a mental health challenge, well, we call them people, we call them peers. So people who have a mental health challenge. And then family is everybody that surrounds them. So there are specific... Tools, information, there's specific supports for each population. And from a family perspective, having people understand that, that there are options, that we can hold hope for the people that we love until they can find it themselves. But in order to get there as a, as a parent, as a family member, I have to understand what is it that we're dealing with. And a lot of people think that mental health—it's—it's it's a character flaw. They're not praying hard enough. It's—it's—it's it, it's, it's from all different reasons, right? And it's a biological brain disorder. And that's what we teach. And we teach that there are ways to live very fulfilling lives to figure out how that dance between uh, medication, if that's what somebody chooses, or therapy or a combination of those, and integrating back into or integrating for the first time into society, right? So in order to provide that support as a family member, I have to understand what mental health is. I have Mm -hmm. to understand what mental wellness is. And I have to understand what my role is and what my role isn't. And that's really difficult for people because it's, it's a trauma. It's a trauma for the individual and for the people that care about them. And it's also not, uh, and you know this really well, it's not a casserole illness, right? So when my wife had ovarian cancer, our faith community, oh, man, you want your dog walk, we'll do your laundry, we'll pick up, <clears> and, you know, <throat> we'll, we'll do anything for you. And it was really, really, really helpful, right? Right. But when my son experienced his first episode of psychosis, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. And to be fair, I perhaps wasn't as forthcoming because if you say the C word, the cancer, you've got people dancing for you. But if you say the P word, psychosis, you, you don't. You don't have that. And trying to figure out how to navigate that yourself so, so getting families to the place, getting parents to the place to understand there is treatment, it works for most people, there's lots of possibilities, and there's hope. So, so we give that little bit of that little inkling to people so they can realize, number one, they're not alone. They're not. But people don't talk about this. They're terrified to talk about this. And then you move into suicide and and suicidality and people feeling that there's absolutely no hope. People get really scared. And they they might have a plan. They might have the means. And they're not going to tell you. They're just not. And to make the space where it's okay to talk where there's no judgment, where it's safe to talk, that's so important, and that's why stuff like this is great.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and I think that's a big part of of why we're doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I read an article where they said, when you say, hey, I have cancer, nobody says, hey, suck it up, right? But a lot of times when you have mental illness, which is a a big spectrum, right, when you talk about is it depression, is it schizophrenia, uh, there's so many things that fall in there but people kind of want to look the other way, it's uncomfortable, they don't want to talk about it, um, which I think probably makes the, the peer who's suffering from it or trying to cope with it, I don't know, there's a sense of shame, mm. right? And so, usually when you're ashamed, you don't reach out and want to, want to share that with people, right. right? And seek that help, which is why I think NAMI's great because of all the people that have family that have been involved in these issues and they're so passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just a great starting point. Yeah. Um, and one wha- and one of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about it was about you said, if medication is necessary, if it's not, um, you know i've I've kind of done some studying on this matter um, in preparation for this, and i I was surprised how much time was spent talking about how this is such a holistic or, like you said, it's not a casserole type thing. You can't just put everyone in in one bucket um and how much you you know it's physiological it's biological it's chemical it's it's mental it's emotional and there's so many different things in your experience how much time have you seen things change in terms of the approach where maybe in past decades where you know antidepressants came out and those were just you know being given to a lot of people um is there a a more holistic approach to people now that you're seeing that maybe they're looking at diet and daily exercise and I know there's certain probably mental illnesses and you would know better than me that you know it is absolutely wow no way we you know have to medicate for this but I guess is there a different approach to it today than it has been in the past a, a greater understanding of, of when we're diagnosing people that we're not just saying hey here's some pills you know it's a kind of a one one-size-fits-all
2: well, as you said, there isn't one diagnosis, and that diagnosis that someone has may be different in 30 different people. Everyone could experience depression a little differently, and we have a pendulum here, and that, in terms of treatment, and the pendulum involves whether or not you know uh, whether or not someone believes there's there's a new miracle medication that's going to cure everyone. Um, There was a book listening to Prozac, and Prozac, when it came out, was going to be the SSRI, Selective uh, Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, that was going to uh, cure all illness. And as you said, it is uh, relatively uh, complex to deal with what's going on. Not everyone responds to medication. And the solution almost never is medication. We have evidence-based studies, and medication can assist but it's medication in the context of family it's medication in the context of community it's medication in the context of support from peers peers with or without uh, similar struggles or diagnoses so there's a lot of different elements you were talking about hope Carl Menninger who uh, wrote Vital Balance and a number of other books was one of the uh, first psychiatrist who really discuss mental illness holistically. So he is someone who would say, look, we have these diagnostic manuals that diagnose someone to a decimal point out to the hundredths place. And we don't have that precision in terms of understanding what's going on because we need to understand what that illness means to that individual. And he would say that when you go to treat mental illness you have to start with the right measure of hope and doubt. Too much hope you'll be unrealistic and you won't sustain your effort. Too much doubt you won't try things. So what we encourage people to do is to find someone they could work with in mental health and for some individuals it may involve a number of things. You could have someone who has too much caffeine, which could be affecting anxiety, and you have to work with diet. In other cases, it may be much more biological. You also have to look at someone's history. One of the beautiful things, it isn't beautiful, but it's, it's nice to know it started in San Diego, was something called Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, Scales that was done with Kaiser and the CDC. And what we found is what we knew already in mental health. The more bad things that happen to you while you're growing up, the more likely you're gonna have problems in relationships. Some of them may be um, suicidal. For bad events, you're two thousand times more likely to be suicidal because you lose that sense of hope more quickly. So people have to recognize their vulnerabilities based on their experience. They have to recognize the vulnerabilities based on the biology in their family. Because often we'll find that there are other family members, sometimes who are undiagnosed, but suffered with some of these same types of things. And have the sort of discussions where we all admit, but by the grace of God, go any number of us based on circumstances, biology, triggering events, what are those? we need to ask, how do we build in resiliencies? So this pendulum shifts where sometimes we say, hey, medication's gonna be everything, it's it's gonna cure it, it helps uh, manage things, and it is part of the picture. But there are all these other elements that are involved in a successful treatment. Uh, part of it is we know cognitive behavior therapy helps a lot. We have specific treatments now which we've never had, uh, which have an element of treating suicide. For example, in cognitive behavior therapy for suicide, people online can now build something called a hope chest where they put things that affirm why I want to be here that they could look at. There are apps like the Trevor Project that deals with um, telling someone it gets better to basically deal with the sense that maybe I can have some hope, that it can get better. And one of the important things you heard that NAMI does is it communicates the hope to the family, but also gives them the information of people sharing which doctors in the community have treated their children in a manner where the child felt respected and ultimately uh, found a way of managing their illness. So this communication piece becomes extremely important. Um, If anyone tells you that the cure is this medication, this diet, this type of medication, going out into the wilderness for a period of time, like happened in the tradition of the Desert Fathers and you know, early Christianity, though that's not the whole story. Getting out in nature helps you. I had a client, I've had multiple clients, but uh, when I was at the Menninger Hospital, we would occasionally go for walks because sometimes it's important to see something larger than you in scale to get some perspective. Because you could get really lost in focusing on everything that's wrong and not focusing on what is inspiring. And that often occurs in nature. You know, to get someone out of themselves a little bit. That's why we had music therapy. That's why we had art therapy. Finding ways for people to express themselves where the unspeakable can come into discussion and can lead to understanding and connection. One of the major epidemics in the world right now is loneliness. And the big problem with mental illness is it leads to loneliness. Loneliness for the families who can't talk to anyone about what's going on with their child. Loneliness for the person who's mentally ill. Loneliness, we've, gone to, we've come to recognize, shortens life by an average of 15 years makes the progression of Alzheimer's with cognitive decline faster. You have the same life expectancy of someone who's overweight. And loneliness is equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day based on the research. Wow. A year ago, and and the interesting thing is you could be the life of the party like Joe, but deep down be very lonely, not really connect with people. Because they found getting you in groups doesn't cure loneliness. Before Theresa May resigned in England, one of the things she did was she recognized loneliness as such a health problem affecting four out of ten people in England that she created a ministry of loneliness. In 2020, for the first time in a school system in a country, they're going to be working on addressing loneliness in both Undergrads and in high school, and that hasn't occurred before. Based on the recognition of how hurt people are, and hurt people either hurt themselves or hurt other people. Sure. We now are developing in this country trauma-informed schools. We have a school in San Diego, Cherokee, that was copied by Leeds in England. Was listed as one of the two wonderful schools and trauma care. Wisconsin in 2017 became one of the first states to suggest the need for trauma informed schools. I assisted the province of Ontario and Canada as a reviewer of a new mental health uh, advisory that went out because we are now struggling with suicide becoming the second leading cause of death, if you've read the CDC reports.
0: Between 15 and 24.
2: Between 15 and 24, it actually goes down 13 to 34. But it, it is, um, we look at how these numbers are increasing, and they're increasing at a time when we're more digitally connected, but more alone. A re- recent study by Blue Cross found Austin to be one of the loneliest cities despite all the millennials that are living there. The word friend in Facebook isn't the same as having a friend you could really talk to.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And I've wondered, is it, and maybe it's a little bit of both, right? Because humans want to be connected, right? We want relationships. We want friends. We want people that we can confide in and get support from and share experiences with. And one of the things that I've wondered is with all the social media Right, We're more connected to some degree, but really everyone's putting out there what they want people to consume. And I don't know how authentic that connection is, but I also think, and this is what I've experienced with my own kids, is there's also this constant stimulus that's happening where I think when they have any time by themselves or they aren't connected how they see connected, whatever the definition of that is, whether it's a like or a comment or things like that, they don't even know what to do with themselves. Yeah,
1: Connectivity is very different in in different regards. That was so eloquent talking about loneliness because that's really, really true. And it's something that a lot of parents I talk to, not only the families themselves are experiencing, but our young people. And if you are, Young person who's growing up and going through school with a mental health condition Chances are you're really just trying to get through school with a mental health condition and maybe not Socializing maybe not building friendships. Maybe not talking on the phone all night because you're just Spending all of your energy trying to get through school, Right. right? And then you graduate if you're lucky you graduate or you go back and graduate and all of your peers are now gone. They're either away to college or they're, they're moving or they're working. So now what? You don't have any connections. You don't know how to do that social thing because I never learned it. And now I'm a young adult and I'm alone and I'm really lonely. And I, I as a parent, it is devastating to have said to you, I'm so lonely, I think I'd rather just sleep, and then sleep wow. 18 hours a day. Wow! It's devastating, so you do your best to try and find connections, connectivity. You do your best to try and find other communities, to try and figure out how to, to get that connectivity, right? And I will do one plug for social media, and also a big plug for PlayStation, because I have learned Over about two years, so very, very briefly, um, my son lives with depression and anxiety, both very extreme. The anxiety is mostly separation anxiety, and we discovered this started when he was about nine or ten, and we got to a wonderful child psychiatrist, but when he turned 16 we realized that he's actually also on the autism spectrum. Nobody was asking the right questions, okay? So that kind of made our heads turn around and it was like, oh, okay, now, now we see sort of what we're dealing with. And to, to try and really understand where he was and school was very, very difficult. The last four months of being a senior, he spent in bed because he was too depressed to even shower. Right? And then a vice principal says, hey, he's lazy. That doesn't work, right? So just trying to navigate this. I realized that I need to take a step back, stop criticizing, because of course, I know what needs to be done, I really do. Mm -mm. And just watch what he's doing. And when he said, you wanna come and watch me, come sit down and watch me. It's like, I don't wanna watch shooting people, PlayStation, this is ridiculous. And then I shut my mouth and I sat down and I watched. And I watched, and I watched, and I understand it now. And I see that even though he's a hundred percent isolated, there are times when he's joking and laughing and talking to the friends that he's playing with. Sure. And so there is a connectivity, and and it's certainly not the only thing that somebody needs to be doing, but addressing that loneliness is just—it's—it's um, it's probably the most important thing.
2: Really? Right. You, you, you said at least five things I could have responded to in your brief, <laughs> brief statement. I don't know where to begin, but I do, I do want to point out that we have wrong associations between violence and mental illness. Most people who are violent are not mentally ill. And if you're mentally ill, you're more likely to be the victim of violence. And that's something to point out because we have so many movies where they show someone who's deranged and a a serial killer or 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 you hear this now in terms of uh, the debate regarding what we necessarily need in terms of mental illness treatment to prevent shootings we have people who are very isolated lonely and angry and they are fodder for hate groups they are fodder for supremacy that's not mental illness that that is loneliness And the problem with loneliness is we have to treat it like thirst or hunger. It's a basic need. We have something called mirror neurons that respond and help us pick up behavior from other people. We are so wired to connect. And what you said about social media is right for a lot of people, and that is you need to have time for contemplation. We've lost that because you go to a restaurant, people are always on their devices. Exactly. You need to be able, you need to have time away from the devices. So a, a friend of mine wrote a book called Cyber Traps for the Young, which is $9 on Amazon. I don't get a cut. <laughs> right, but I'm just, um, Frederick Lane. So th- the issue becomes one of where do you charge your phones? Because we now know there's Facebook depression because people are comparing these avatars and real life doesn't live up to that. Right. And when you put all your energy in that false self, in that avatar, in that social media icon, it's easy to collapse when people see through it. And so one of the things we're doing in this county is we're doing a more active um, stepping in in terms of threat assessment and looking at what's going on in the cyber world because people post or share what they're gonna do before they do bad things or in terms of what they're thinking about. And now that space is often in social media rather than in the notes that occurred when we were much younger if someone was suicidal. It's in that social media space. But the important thing is to have moments of connection with something larger than yourself, with something that helps give you perspective and gives you time for contemplation of what it means to care about others, to want their acceptance, why do you want to be accepted and where all that fits in. And that becomes part part of mental health is recognizing those
0: things. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think sometimes it makes it makes me sad, it kind of breaks my heart sometimes when, you know, some of the things that are on social media That create this expectation or this cookie cutter, whether it's image or what it means, the definition of cool. And I guess us growing up and no matter what time frame, you're going to have peer pressure and you're going to have those things. But I just think it's so much more readily available and um, consumed on a mass level. That I think you know it just it it's hard to get away from it, mm-hmm. right? it's yeah. it's, you know, I there was a situation, you know, one of my sons was at school, and one of his friends was using the restroom in a stall, and someone else thought it'd be funny to reach his camera over the stall and take a picture of him and then spread that around, right? It's just so fast and so damaging, and that kind of event yes. can make someone to me, I could see how that child could just go to a really bad place really fast. And he may not have had any mental illness or been depressed or anything like that, but all of a sudden that one event can, can have incredible damage.
2: It, it can be damaging, but it's always in the context of a life. <coughs> so resiliency is based on other experiences. So never do we find something related to one event. It's their coping, their resiliency, their community, a number of other things. But we had that student whose roommate filled them surreptitiously So we have the IOT, the Internet of Things, and people are filming, they're posting. We have what's called uh, spoof porn, where they put your head over someone else, and they, they show that. You have revenge porn, and we have laws, and this is relatively new. We have sexting, and we're finding kids as young as five or six year olds sending pictures of themselves that shouldn't be sent. All these are attempts at connection that have gone awry because people don't really feel loved or supported or with others and it's their way of reaching out. So we have a lot to do with cyber citizenship and this is a whole new frontier for us. Sure. As um, the iPhone, the iPhone 11 coming out, which iPhone 12, look at those years on the iPhones they tell you how long people have had a whole production studio capability in their phone where they could share those images. So this is relatively new for society that people could do these types of things. We're looking at elections where we know there were fake groups set up and and all all that type of thing. And and the amount of uh, fraud that goes on online. Sure. Including with titles and other other types of things. Sure.
0: That yeah, you're aware of. A, yeah, it's a big part of what we do all the time. So not to I guess somewhat shift gears a little bit, but what and maybe I uh, maybe the question doesn't make sense and I'm looking at it wrong, but what percentage would you guys say of mental illness or depression in particular that would you know in the context of suicide um, is kind of a an ongoing thing where they've suffered from it for a long time, and and what is more like event driven, if if that makes sense. Does that, that question make sense? No, it 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 makes sense. Like, um, you know, a breakup yeah. or I got fired from my job or all those things versus okay. if that so context to it. So if
2: I were to talk about mass shooters, which often have a suicide component in it, F FBI, June of uh, 2018, looked at 60 cases where they had enough information. I think it was like 59 or 63, somewhere in that area. I don't remember exactly. But they found on average... adverse life events had occurred before they went on that sort of mass murder rampage. And often there was a triggering event that was the final straw. So you always have to look at what's the final straw. And we have to look at what is the story that someone tells themselves. And one of the sad things about social media now is people go online and they compare other people who've done things and they want to exceed those numbers. So they'll go to Las Vegas and say, over 500 people were shot, you know. How am I gonna do something larger? And uh, you know, how many people were shot in pulse and all that other stuff. Right. But for most, of, for most people, what we have to understand is that when someone ends their life, typically they're in a lot of pain. And they don't see a way out of that pain. And so the most important thing to do is to bring in that sense of hope, that things could get better, that it's okay for you to be in pain and, and the issue becomes one of not getting caught in it. It's how do you let it transform? How do you let it inform you? How do you let it float away, you know, in terms, terms of images? At that moment, it doesn't seem possible and you can't go on another day suffering so intensely.
0: So if you had based on your experience and throw this out to both of you, but in your experience when someone's at that point, and for those of people who are either watching or listening to this and they had someone in their life that said, You know, hey, I'm just I don't want to live anymore or you know and I I terrible to say lucky enough to hear that because sometimes we don't hear it right and it happens like in the case of joe but what would be your advice I- in that type of situation and, and maybe you know dovetail into a little bit talking about oscar and talking about um care to prevent fail and some of those things that you're doing proactively to get resources and information out there but let's start with maybe your advice to people who have someone in their life whether it's a family member or a co-worker or anybody like that that Um, is presented with this type of situation
1: if they don't tell you ask you have to say it you have to ask because asking someone if they're planning on ending their life doesn't give them the idea or permission to end their life and people are afraid to say the word suicide because they don't want to put it on the table they're afraid to ask someone are you considering suicide because that will make them that's not true What it will do is it will make someone feel heard, and we have to be able to ask that question. We have to be able to do that. So if somebody really has someone in their life that they're really concerned about, they need to ask them right away, and they need to get them to some kind of help. And there's different tools for doing that, certainly. Um, There's different trainings people can get. They're all free. There's something called Question, Persuade, Refer, QPR. CPR is for the heart, QPR is for the mind. And it's to, to make sure that someone stays alive long enough to get to help. So there's different tools that we have, but being able to say it, and um, being able to address it in real time. So those are, those are two different things. Right. And to be able to address it in real time is a very powerful thing um, indeed.
0: Thank you for that. That's
1: it's,
2: it's important to tackle that myth, myth that if you ask about it, you're you're putting the idea in their
0: head. And I think that's why I asked. You know what I mean? I think that probably came from a place of, gosh, I wouldn't want to. Someone was really withdrawn, or said the words, or just seemed like really in, in a ton of despair. Mm-hmm. Like, gosh, but I can't ask them. Are they thinking about something like that? Yes, and
2: and that's where the word care comes in that we're going to talk about later, just to segue into it. So. So basically, you have to listen with compassion. That someone's in a lot of pain if that's what they're contemplating. That they really hurt. So you have to be compassionate. You have to accept where they're at. One of the worst things you can do is argue with someone. And people will do that. Because they are trying to convince them not to do something. This isn't a time for polemics. To engage in a debate. This is why you should be alive. This is why people don't want to hear that at that moment. And the reason is... They, uh, they feel they've disappointed people, they're not going to succeed at what they're doing, they're suffering too much, they, they can't go on. So rather than argue you have to the A in care, you have to accept that's where they're at. And when you accept that's where they're at, then you have to refer. And as a mental health person, I may have to call myself the psychiatric emergency response team. I'm doing something professionally called a lethality assessment. A lethality assessment means I'm seeing. Um, I've had people who tell me, I am going to the Swiss Alps, walk into the snow, and freeze to death, but they don't have the money to buy a ticket. <laughs> um, they're going to save up the money to go to the Swiss Alps. So they have a plan which is not very reasonable. But if someone tells me, I have a gun, it's in my car, I'm going to go blow up my brains right now. It's imminent, which is a word that we use in lethality, and I call in the cavalry. I call in the psychiatric emergency response team while they're in session. They're not, you know, we're, we're expanding it, but they're not available from about um, midnight to about 7 a.m., so there's a period of time when they're not available, but I call them up. Or, as uh, you'll hear in a moment, <laughs> I could use the Oscar app to find what's open and where to send someone you know, so I refer someone um, carefully, and then I also look to empower the part of them that has reached out of, reached out to me, and potentially wants to live. And I empower that by finding that, by finding that small tincture or droplet of faith, that small sense that is now flickering, that's almost blown out, of maybe things could get better, and I empower that bit of hope to help someone get to the next phase where they're getting the necessary support. So at that moment, I care, I bring compassion, acceptance, I refer appropriately, and I empower the part of them that wants to live.
0: Thank you.
1: I just want to say the not arguing, I really appreciate that. And sometimes that's very hard to to get to. If you you have one of your children say, no one at school likes me, right? right? what do you say? Of course people like you, right? But that's not what they're feeling. It's like, I hear you are really upset that no one at school likes you. You're having them be heard. Right. So sure. when, when people say those things, not to talk them out, not to argue, not to argue with them. And yeah. just, just hear it, accept it non-judgmentally.
2: And we do that as adults sometimes. We want to bring our wisdom and our experience. No, it gets better. You're so young. You have your whole life ahead of you. Think of the wonderful things you're going to get done. That doesn't yeah. matter because you're in the here and now. And in this moment, this person is suffering, incredibly so, that they want to sleep, but they want to sleep forever. Right.
0: I also read something that was interesting to me and made sense was that someone suffering from depression or is feeling that low, not to tell them, everyone deals with this, because they have this feeling of, wow, I'm not even unique. In my own despair, like I'm not even, you know, even in my lowest, I'm not even special.
2: Well, you, you have you have to be careful because we do send people to web pages. We we send them to the uh, suicide hotline where they could text and do things. Where we basically, and and this is one of the things I always try to do in giving someone the right amount of hope and doubt. And that is hope is yeah there are people who've dealt with this and they've made it through it here's some web pages other resources that could help you and the doubt that's present is yeah you're going to have to do some work and right now from where you're at it doesn't look possible so what I try to do is I try to reflect the complexity of what's going on so it's more than just saying you're validating it I'm validating that, that both elements are there so um You know, I I don't want to say, well, so-and-so was depressed and they got better. You know, the comparisons are toxic. But what you want to say is, look, we live in a world where there are new treatment possibilities. And who knows what's going to happen down the road in in terms of uh, what we can do. I, I mean, every now and then, right now they're using magnets at UCSD to treat depression and You know, things go back and forth in terms of what are different ways to do things. uh, uh, We're better now at matching medications to someone's genetics. Right. And we're we're getting better at at determining which medications are going to help someone. Mm -hmm. We're also modeling our medications on a molecular level on computers. It's sort of like AutoCAD for drugs where we say, what's going to fit that 5-HT site in the brain better? How's that going to work with this individual to deal with the depletion of, of the neurons they need in order to feel uh, connected and alive? So, that issue of hope becomes very important, but also the doubt that we don't know if it's going to, when it's going to take place, what's going to happen, and what the outcome is going to be. Because we know with things like bipolar disorder, some individuals are going to struggle for a long, long time before they reach a point.
0: Of uh, balance and health. Yeah, which is why I think, you know, specifically what you shared about family and people who care about you is huge because when I was reading up on both, you know, Care to Prevent Fail and Oscar and stuff like that, until I sat here with you and heard it in context of that type of love and support, Mm -hmm. like, it seemed to me like, God, like, how is this resource or an online thing, like if I'm in that place, how, do, how does that help me? What's my motivation to go there? But when, it's, when it, you're directed or kind of someone's holding your hand as you walk down that path, it makes a ton more sense.
1: So a real life example is I was in an emergency room with an 18-year-old son that we thought was having a heart attack in a very difficult time trying to get back to school and and lots of things happening. Clearly not having a heart attack, but mom's terrified. And to just control our anxiety in the emergency room, we shared his earbuds because we had the app downloaded. And not only does it tell you what to do before, during, and after a psychiatric crisis, there's some like Native American flute there's some like rainforest sounds there's there's some really nice relaxing audio that just can take it down a notch there's, and th- there's like
2: five
0: of them <laughs> that, that you could
2: listen to that's awesome
0: Yeah. yeah, that's yeah built in really head. truly wow that's so neat so wh- where did that come from i mean do, like what got you to that place where you guys came up with this resource i mean clearly because one of the first things you said when Suzette sat down was, I love Oscar, <laughs> right? So it's clearly powerful, and it's being used. It's known in the community. Like, what was the genesis of that? Where did that come from?
1: So it came, fr- it came from people who live with mental health conditions and their families. And um, a couple of years ago, we had a program called Tech Cafe, and what that did was it taught individuals who lived with a mental health condition how to use computers, what programs were, what a Word document was, and then gave them the computer that they learned on, right? So it was very technology-based. One thing that we do know is a lot of people who live with mental health conditions do not have a lot of access to technology. So we were trying to change that. And in a lot of focus groups, we heard there was a need. There was a need for some apps to help people in these, in these emergencies, in these crises.
2: That's great. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, you hear me gushing about it? Yeah. You find facilities that are open that you can go to, and it ties into Google Maps, so it helps navigate you there. Wow. So not only do you see what's open, it helps you get there. It's just, it is so well thought out.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm is, so proud of our name yeah. cha- yeah. chapter. It's, it's yeah, a, it's a flagship uh, app. Program And we've got, so we've got Oscar and then we have Oscar Jr. And these are all free. You can download them free. Sure. And then we have something called Alfredo, which is um, for IEPs. It's about how to navigate the special education system. If you're a parent and you have a young person who perhaps lives with a mental health condition or another disability... How do you get them through school? It's a very confusing process. So that was another one that we did, and these are coming out in different languages also.
2: And I- IEP is an individual education yeah. plan. So basically, they could be done at a school or at the regional center, depending yeah. on your mental illness or, or uh, your disability.
0: Yeah, I was before I got into this business. I was in education. And I was a teacher, and uh, that was the path I was going down. And you know, I won't go down the long story of what changed the direction, but you know when i was first started teaching i had the most difficult time with this my first class and mm-hmm. a principal that i worked for who was a mentor of mine and a very wise man came up to me and just said take a breath and he said you you can't teach anything until you have your classroom managed and they feel safe and they feel like they want to participate and so forget about the lesson and just get them engaged and i think that was how this t- how that ties to all of this is that I feel like if kids don't feel safe and valued and have those types of plans and structure and what they need to feel like, wow, I'm cared about here and I belong, it, it, we could try to teach them anything under the sun, but their basic mm-hmm. needs aren't met, so we're just kind of spinning. And what do they really care about? Algebra or you know Egyptian times or the missions in California if they're sitting there lonely, or, I don't learn this way, and yet I'm expected to learn this way. Yeah, different ways of learning. Yeah.
2: But you speak to something that's very important. And the basis of trauma-informed schools is that if you've been traumatized, you're too activated to learn. You can't listen. <coughs> so what they did is, in Cherokee, they met with parents and supported them, similar to what NAMI does. They made sure there was food in the household. And suddenly, uh, they, they got rid of zero tolerance. They recognize that hurt kids are gonna act out, so how do we address these things? So that's the shift that's coming in education because the majority of cases of mental illness are first seen during schooling. 70 plus percent are seen when someone's in school. So that's why North Dakota is one of the first states to require eight hours for its teachers and mental health training so they could better respond and recognize when, when people are there. Which brings me to the fail piece of care to prevent a fail. So fail was for people who work in schools, because they do a lot of work there, to recognize when someone's at risk. And F was for fixation. Someone's thinking about ending their life and they start giving things away. They start indicating that the world's gonna be better without them. Um, something that you gave them for birthday that they know you thought was a great gift, they give back to you. Wow. A is the anger that's present in people who don't fit in or are alone. That's why in California, every school district needs to have a suicide prevention plan. And in that group of angry children are foster kids. Think about it. In terms of adverse life events, they've lost families. They've been in different places. Sometimes they've been abused so foster kids high those, have those high adverse child experiences, they're high on the list. Children who've been in delinquency court and things like that, usually there's something that's going on. LGBT population, they have four times the amount of suicide attempts. Right. And right now what we're finding in this country is the greatest Growth in suicide completion is in adolescent girls. And they're using a lot of ropes. And they're hanging themselves. But these groups are angry. And they have reason to be angry because they're rejected, they're not accepted, they don't feel loved. I, that anger, and being in those groups leads to that sense of loneliness and isolation. So I is that isolation that occurs with loneliness. And then finally, what we assess is L. What helps them in the leap to lethality? And recognize it could be as simple as being able to drive a car because you could drive that off a cliff. doesn't need to be a gun or a knife. It could be pills in the medicine cabinet. So what you'll find in a lot of families that have dealt with this They come up with systems to have doors locked or cabinets locked or medication kept in a way, just like we do in a hospital room when someone's suicidal. You have air vents if someone ties a shoelace or a rope that comes out of the ceiling so they can't hang themselves. You remove the things where someone could harm themselves through that period of time. So you look for what do they have for that leap of lethality and have they referred to it. I'm going to get a gun. I'm going to get explosives you know or poison and so you look at that the fixation on 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 dying seen in what they give away and what they talk about and what they're drawing and what they're writing a the anger they feel which speaks to a lack of connection and that lack of connection is seen in isolation and loneliness and l is the means to the leap to lethality to death so that's why care to prevent a fail be compassionate accepting refer appropriately, and empower the part of them that wants to live. So that's what last year we trained 10,000 school employees in, in the county wow. as, as a way to, to, to approach this thing.
0: So what districts have those been implemented in, or have you done those trainings in?
2: I am working through the San Diego County Office of Education, Okay. and I don't know which of the districts that belong in the risk management pool engaged in that. Gotcha. So so this is a shout I, I, to
0: I, anyone who didn't to, to, to get on it and yeah, let's my, do this, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something we're looking at. I mean, to to deal with, I was at our largest district here where they had an administrator and another person commit suicide, and we're dealing with the principals. And one of the things that struck me is how when this pebble lands in the pond of someone dying, how it touches so many lives and activates so many issues for them, similar to what happened with Joe. And the other thing I always remember, um, one of the things we know, when's the greatest risk of someone committing suicide? Right when they've been released from a hospital treatment program. Really? And that's because they're not being watched now, they've been learned to say everything they could (coughs) to get released and they're coming back now to a life that's worse because they've been gone for weeks, Um, they're, they're further from their friends, and they're even more alone after that hospitalization. And everyone's blaming each other rather than connecting with each other that they ended up in the hospital. So just because you're through the crisis or someone appears to be getting better, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're through this period of time. You're in the eye of the hurricane at that moment. There's more to come as someone adjusts to living through life now with the stigma of having been rescued when they attempted suicide. They've come closer to fulfilling that, which makes the next step the next time easier.
0: right.
1: So one of the things that NAMI has is a program called Friends in the Lobby and that is in nine or ten hospitals in san diego that have psychiatric units and we've got family members who have had a loved one who was in the hospital previously and they kind of learned how to deal with that and now they're volunteering their own that's to be in the lobby their friends in the lobby to talk to people so that is one way that we try and connect with families one way we try and connect with loved ones and peers as well and then there's two programs specifically for helping people that are coming out of programs that are coming out of psychiatric programs and hospitals. One works directly with uh, Rosecrans at County Health, Rosecrans Psychiatric Hospital, and that's called Next Steps. And we have what is in San Diego called peer support specialists or family support specialists. Those are people with lived experience who work in the field. They're using their recovery, they've gotten some education. They're not licensed, it's not clinical work, it's, it's more uh, mentor-like. So, sure. so the next steps will help people with their next steps and, and kind of watch them as they, as they build their life. And then Peer Links is another one for UCSD and other programs and hospitals that people come out. Again, it's walking with that individual and having that, that peer support. Because of that, people coming out of programs, oftentimes it's a very dangerous time.
0: Yeah. Wow. And, it, and those resources that you just mentioned are probably available through OSCAR. Well, or links yeah. to them yeah. or like in
1: our website absolutely.
2: Great. Yeah, they're listed under resources, but you connect with them directly by going to to their webpages. And our district attorney's office through Summer Stefan and tasked to Rachel Solov, who is uh, one of our uh, assistant DAs, are really dealing with the, the need to make sure that people who are mentally ill aren't criminalized. And so they're working with the intersection of homelessness, substance abuse, and mental illness. Because often they come together. They come together because you can't hold down a job. You're depressed so you may seek stimulants or, or uh, along those lines. And that lifestyle leads to homelessness and then it exposes you when you're mentally ill to the types of neighborhoods where you're more likely to be victimized as, as, when you're mentally ill. I had a case I did years ago where someone lost benefits, at least temporarily, we had them reinstated, where someone kidnapped someone waiting in line to get their medication and took them to a store they made them rob, and they weren't with it enough on their medication to show up to the hearing. (laughs) When they were picked up, the officer said, no, you had nothing to do with it, it's okay, but you need to go to court. Because she didn't go to court, if you're, if you're Uh, convicted of a felony you could use your your uh, Medicare benefits and so the issue became how some of these people are exploited and then lose their benefits that pay for their treatment so we're trying to work on all this together because there's a tremendous problem Um, a lot of people who are homeless are mentally ill
0: what do you think the percentage is I mean it's probably a tough thing to measure Because they're probably not participating in a lot of, you know, census activity and those types of things. But what is there any study out there, or any finding on the percentage of homeless people that are mentally ill or suffer from s- a mental illness?
2: I'm, I'm not remembering the numbers, but we know that there's 500,000 people who are homeless in the United States. At least 59,000 in Los Angeles alone, and we have the numbers here. Um, I evaluated in a lawsuit dealing with whether you could allow people who are disabled to sleep in their motorhomes um, because they can't, they don't want to live in shelters because they've been hurt in them, they've had their goods stolen in them, they're frightened. And every one of them I evaluated was mentally ill, had had suffered from either physical injuries where they lost everything, part of what the families are dealing with is the lack of a social safety net for those who are mentally ill. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have um, a clubhouse downtown. The clubhouse system in San Diego (coughs) is for people who live with mental illness and it's to connect them with social opportunities, to help them with benefits, um, education, housing so there's a lot of it's it's a hub of services and they're called clubhouses. Right. right. There's several in San Diego and NAMI just picked up the one downtown which is on um, Island uh, Bro- I think Broadway Island 16th in that area. It's uh-huh. a very tough area and it is specifically a clubhouse for individuals who are experiencing homelessness who live with a mental health condition and we, we serve 40 to 50 people lunch each day and, um, oh my gosh, they, we just moved in a couple months ago. So there's a lot of people. In the county of San Diego, in terms of looking at mental health conditions and substance use disorders, the expectation is that people will have a co-occurring disorder, both. It's, it's, it's the, ex, the expectation, not the exception.
0: Right, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah
2: and Veterans Village, once a year, uh, right. John Natcheson started this. Uh, has a program where they connect people with treatment and, and with other types of things, because we're finding a there's also a strong link between as we you started the program by talking about the amount of our veterans who've committed suicide, yeah, and what's going on in that community with homelessness and substance abuse. We we now have veterans courts, dealing with what is the impact. Emotionally and psychologically of having been in war
0: and multiple tours of duty, right. So, I mean, definitely one of the things that I've gathered from this conversation is that it's it's not a um, it's not an individual sport, so to say. You know, it's not a it's it takes a village um, to make an impact to take care of these people to help people that we love. Um, so, for those people that are kind of on this journey with them, whether it be. <laughs> you know and you have first-hand experience with your son um, what would be your advice to a family member so not not just the peer dealing with the particular issue um, and what they're going through and, and specifically how to help them mm-hmm. but in terms of self-care for some of the people who are parents or brothers and sisters mm-hmm. or coworkers workers or that kind of stuff you know what would be your advice to, to those people who clearly have to practice patience and love and understanding and all that stuff you should
1: do a show on (laughs) self-care you should and and self-care shaming is something that we don't want to happen and that's when (coughs) that's when you're trying to get someone to take care of themselves to such an extent that you're shaming them because they're not doing it the way you think they should and and that (coughs) excuse me that's devastating right as someone who does not do self-care very well i'm very very well acquainted with that but the 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 message that I would give is watch your language, how you how you talk. That's really, really important. Understand that you're absolutely not alone. There's a lot of people dealing with this. Mm-hmm. An awful lot of people. There's free resources. You you just have to you have to reach out for it and you have to give it a chance. And oftentimes the people that really need to be in the class or the group, the people that really need it they're the ones that can't stand classes and groups right, right. They, yeah so so just be patient there's a lot of people there's a lot of help out there
0: and I, I would imagine a lot of people because of how the societal pressures have you know treated mental illness and we talked about the shame or you know keeping it quiet that there's probably a lot of people don't take the time for because it's, it's, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to, to help my son. I'm here to help my brother. I'm here, no, this is for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it probably is sometimes difficult for people to grab a hold of the resources that are available to take care of themselves, mm-hmm. to probably make them more able to better take care of those other people.
1: It's a tremendous pressure and <clears throat> the yeah. trauma that you're experiencing. It's almost I, like I think people default to their worst their their worst things about caring for themselves because they're just spinning, trying to, trying to cope, trying to deal. They don't know what's going right. on. They don't stop long enough to reflect, take a breath, and realize, okay, I'm on this train. I got to figure out what's the car in front of me? What's the car behind me? And to realize that there are other people on the train that can really help them.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: And at the same time, you have to be your child's advocate so although there are people on the train who could help they don't make it on the train unless you help get them on the train so so it's it's challenging in law enforcement we you know we we can't call it burnout we call it compassion fatigue so uh, there are measures that we use in terms of irritability and all these other signs that someone could look at that they're getting fatigued and you need to have those breaks as you're suggested suggesting for self-care. And ultimately, if we wanna judge the society that we create, and Gandhi and uh, and Toynbee, the historian, a number have said the same thing, that we could judge how wonderful our society is by how it treats its mentally ill, its criminals, its elderly, and its children.
0: That's pretty impactful right there. So maybe that's a good place for us to leave off I think we've had a, a really good discussion. Again, thank you so much for being here um, for our first show and something that's near and dear to our heart here. Um, something important to me and, and our family here at the company. And um, I know you've taken time out of your day to, to contribute. And I, I wish you both extremely well. I have so much respect for people who make it part of their, um, their mission to really take care of other people and, and you know, affect the world. And I think each of you're doing that. And I, and I, I think that's really great.
2: So not only are you welcome, I want to thank you for having the courage to have this type of conversation. It is really admirable and appreciated.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. Okay.